Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, this is the Red Box Politics podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can join me every day live on Times Radio, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's politics without the boring bits. And here on the podcast, we bring you the very best of the show. So like all the other episodes, we're going to dive straight in. Let's get on with it. Now, every morning, we speak to two of our favourite columnists about what's going on in the news. I wonder what we're going to talk about. Anyway, uh, uh, as it's uh, Wednesday, we're always joined by Alice Thompson. Morning, Alice. Hi. Nice to have you with us. And John Campton. Morning, John. Good morning, a groggy good morning to you. Uh, anyone got any suggestions for where we might like to start this morning? John, anything in the news that's caught your eye? Uh, not much, not much. Future it's quite a dull democracy. day, I think, really. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, there hasn't actually been any news, strictly speaking. There's been um, a lot of waiting, not a lot of change, and then Donald Trump said something a bit mad. Um, what The thing I want to focus on right now is, is part of the reason that people are shocked and surprised by what has happened is because time and again, the liberal media elite, whatever you want to call us, underestimate or misunderstand the fact there are millions and millions and millions of people in America who like Donald Trump and what he stands for. John? Well, yeah, it's not just in America, Matt. I mean, here you look at the Brexit referendum in 2016, a very similar disconnect. Uh, and both in terms of the polling, but also in terms of the general chit-chat between people, um, at the risk of self-preening, um, my misanthropy always wins out. And in 2016, <clears throat> I predicted Brexit, Trump and Marine Le Pen and um, the French right winger let, us, let me down. Um, I would have won a fair amount. Um, and I uh, thought that Trump uh, was going to do it. I must admit, I wobbled in the last week or two. I got seduced by this idea that uh, Americans have been so freaked out by his cavalier approach to coronavirus that they would um, opt instead for Biden. Um, so I think there's two things. I mean, there's one is just people underestimating, but I think there's a structural thing um, and an interesting thought. Uh, and one of the uh, outlets overnight is that there's a deliberate refusal of Trumpisters, whatever you want to call them, to engage with opinion pollsters. Uh, either they deliberately dupe them um, or they, they refuse to answer because they regard them as all part of the same swamp. I mean, it's interesting, Alice, we spoke to someone from Republicans Overseas UK uh, just uh, five or ten minutes ago. Uh, and he was explaining that Donald Trump is not the problem. He's, he's, uh, he's the guy riding the wave um, of, uh, you know, the long-standing uh, public disconnect in America between voters and Washington. I think that's true. And I think that that's um, what is so incredibly difficult to call the whole time. So uh, there was that very good documentary, The Social Dilemma, which is about why people stay in their bubbles. And once you're in your bubble, it's almost impossible now to get out of your bubble. So we don't see the whole picture ever anymore. You're constantly fed this news. Just, that's just one angle. And I think that's what happened is that you, you tend to feel very strongly that 
you're in one bubble or another and it's so divisive. And in America, you can see now that it was not just Trump. It's just these are the people who just felt disconnected, who are different, who are a whole tribe in themselves that are just talking to each other. And I don't mm-hmm. think the opinion polls really fit into that. They're not going to tell outsiders what they think particularly. Um, so you never know. So that's why, you know, I've kept looking at America thinking, well, women really don't like Trump. You know, we've got a chance that, you know, the, the polls show that they that, that they turned against him. But on the other hand, maybe within their bubbles that that's, you know, they're not saying what they really think to people who they see as outsiders, which are often the there's pollsters. A, so there's a curious piece of sophology going on. I was seeing in one in one Twitter exchange um, um, that apparently, and I have no way of um, corroborating this, the only constituency that Trump has fallen, um, uh, lost support in in 2020 as against 2016 is white men. Um, and that Biden may well have um, picked up some voters uh, in the industrial heartlands of the, uh, of the North. And that um, uh, black women, Latino men, uh, Latino women, black men and white women have all voted in greater numbers for Trump. I find this incredibly hard to believe than than 2016, given uh, everything he says and everything he does. But if that is the case, then something incredibly extraordinary has gone on. We, we um, uh, I can't remember what time it was, maybe three, about half three or something like that. We heard from uh, Pat Brown, who's a black woman uh, with mixed race children who uh, has written a book about what on earth is happening in American politics. And she was saying that actually, you know, uh, people, black people in America who she knows were voting for Donald Trump and were sort of, uh, treated, you know, cast aside by other other black voters in America because people just couldn't understand why they were doing that. But it is possible that they could they could agree with Donald Trump on questions of trade or immigration or draining the swamp or whatever it might be. And actually, that sort of slightly... I mean, Joe Biden didn't go as far as uh, um, Hillary Clinton is describing his supporters deplorables. But that sort of, you know, looking down your nose at anyone who would even consider voting Republican actually ends up causing more problems, Alice. Well, it's like the fruitcake comment, wasn't it, that David Cameron yeah, all that? Yeah, that's really interesting. Long yeah. time ago when we had a very different sort of politics. But when he called the UKIP supporters fruitcakes, that that was the same issue, that these people then rose up and you know, they made it very clear that they didn't really agree with being denigrated in that way. And they thought it was snobbish and that he, you know, that those sort of Tories didn't understand the depth of feeling. And they didn't. And that's why we had Brexit in the end. So I think you have to be very careful about really slagging off the other side in any way at all, don't you? But, but although they then can be incredibly rude if they want to, to the more liberal side. Um, but, I mean, looking back now, when you think mention the word David Cameron, you think that whole era, I found just during the election campaign, that, you know, President Obama doing that when he did that um, basketball shot was really just such a throwback to another time that I just kept thinking about it and thinking, God, you know, that was just, it felt like a different century, didn't it? Well, I remember Tony Blair doing keepy-uppies, um, oh. <laughs> otherwise known as headers, uh, keeping the ball in the air with Kevin Keegan in a in a photo op. And that sort of dates me. And it's, it's interesting that um, Gen Zers now study Tony Blair as history. Um, <laughs> and we keep saying, but, oh, God, mean, you know, politicians, then we were going, politicians getting younger and younger. You know, we have these incredibly young people coming forward. And now, actually, you realise they're, you know, way older than you again. So that's, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I think just, Matt, on the 
to me, the bigger story of the night, although the, the prospect of Trump confounding expectations and winning is big enough and, in my view, bad enough in itself, was his before, during, and I assume after, absolute cavalier disregard for democracy. The, the idea that he said right at the beginning, and of course politicians like doing hubris, that's fine, but he said genuinely, sincerely, um, I will win whatever the case, and then says last night, uh, this, this, this early hours of this morning, um, that uh, in, in effect stop counting the votes in those states um, with the mail-in votes that might go against him. It's one thing to talk about Trump in isolation, but this is manna from heaven for authoritarians, either sort of formal dictatorships or this sort of grey area authoritarians in Hungary, Turkey, Brazil, whatever, for the future. Don't like the result? Cancel the election. Um, disparage the process. And I was listening uh, just an hour or so ago uh, elsewhere to an interview with a Russian commentator who was basically saying, well, you know, absolutely, we've got nothing to learn from America when it comes to democracy. And that makes all areas of trying to do the right thing around the world in the future for the West pretty nigh impossible now. Let's move away from uh, uh, America for a moment and come come back a bit close to home. Obviously, MPs voting uh, tonight on the lockdown uh, measures in England. Um, the, the second lockdown to last uh, until the beginning of December. Uh, Alice, you've written in your column today, care home residents need a lenient lockdown. You've written um, uh, about your, your parents' own experience as well. Uh, explain what you've been, been writing in the Times today. I was writing about the fact that actually at the beginning of this week, the two care homes where my, both my parents are very kindly let them meet up. But it was for the first time in nine months. They haven't seen each other since February. And they were, um, very strangely, they have known each other since they were born and they actually lived next door to each other uh, and then lived with each other for the whole of their lives. So they've never been apart at all, apart from this la last nine months and a couple of years during the Second World War, my father was evacuated. Um, so it, it was very poignant. My father's got dementia and so, and my mother's physically um, disabled in a wheelchair. So they had to be in different homes. But it was really quite extraordinary watching them get together because my father still sort of somehow remembered who my mother was. And, and it just felt so, really so raw just watching these two people who've been separated by this virus and the fact they can't get together and they were in full PPE and they couldn't even touch each other. It, it was really difficult to see. But um, they were just so pleased, I think, my particular mother, that actually just for the first time she could see him in nine months. And it did make me feel... We have got to be very careful with rules to try and make sure that they they don't go too over the top. And you look at the legislation now, and if care homes are shut down again completely, neither of them will get to see any of us. Um, you know, if you live, we're not in Gloucestershire, but Gloucestershire have actually closed them until April uh, next year, and and that is very difficult for the elderly. And they're really very much in care homes in their last years. They may never see their family again if they don't see them now. And they're not really being given any choice in whether or not, you know, that they, you know, they can make the decisions. They'd prefer to actually risk catching the virus or whether they do want to see their family before they die. And I think that's very hard. That was Alice Thompson there. John Kampfner, you can read John. He writes in the Times Red Box, award-winning morning email, uh, on a, which comes out, he writes on a Friday. It comes out every day, Monday to Saturday. Now then, fancy a chocolate 
The ambassador's receptions are noted in society for their host's exquisite taste that captivates his guests. Ferrero Rocher, a taste sensation, rich, luxurious, unique. Excellente. Monsieur, with Ferrero Rocher, you're really spoiling us. Ferrero Rocher, a sign of good taste. That's sort of slightly showing my age there. Um, uh, the Ferrero Rocher abbot there. But being an ambassador is not all swanky parties and trays of little wrapped golden chockies, especially not on a morning like this. How do you di maintain diplomacy with perhaps the least diplomatic leader the Western world has ever seen? Well, joining me to explain what is going on behind the scenes right now between Britain and America, uh, two people who really know. So Christopher Mayer was Britain's ambassador to Washington from 1997 to 2003. So he knows all about tricky election results, having lived through the old hanging chads in 2000. Morning, Christopher. Morning, Matt. <laughs> I knew an ambassador once who was called Ferrero Rocher. No, you didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I'll ask you about chocolates in a sec. Let me bring Lewis Lukens in. He was uh, essentially deputy ambassador uh, at the US Embassy in London. He was later acting ambassador. He was in the UK from 2016 to 2019. Hi, Lewis. Hi, Matt. Good morning. Uh, nice to have you uh, with us. I suppose we should begin with what is your gut knee-jerk reaction to both the results we've seen and the reactions from uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump? First of all, you, Lewis. So as, as everyone knows, the, the election has not been decided yet. It's come down to about four or five states that are still counting uh, mail-in ballots that, um, that they weren't able to get to yesterday. Um, both candidates still have a path to victory. Joe Biden actually has more paths to victory at this point than Donald Trump does, given the makeup of the states and the un number of un uncounted ballots. Um, and the reaction, I mean, Joe Biden, I think, gave a very measured statement last night, and he said, we will continue to be optimistic, and it's not for me or the president to declare who the winner is. Uh, about an hour later, the president got on stage at the White House and said, uh, I am the winner, and um, any vote that has not been counted must not be counted. We should stop counting ballots right now. And, uh, and I'm the winner. And, if, and we will take this to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, the vice president seemed to walk that back a little bit right afterwards. And he said, well, we will continue to be vigilant as votes are counted. Uh, but the president clearly sees this contest as over and as his victory. What about you, Christopher? Um, how did you um, uh, what have you made of what we've seen so far? Well, I thought that Trump's statement in the early hours, although not surprising, was effectively uh, deranged uh, <laughs> because it bears no resemblance to um, American law or precedence um, and was clearly an attempt to try and steal victory before the votes were counted. Um, it, the fact that it's expected uh, doesn't mean that it's normal. Uh, and, and I think one of the things it shows how the extent to which people have normalized the weirdness of Trump, it is demonstrably a false thing uh, to have said. That apart, I always thought that the notion of a, of a democratic uh, sort of tsunami that would sweep across the United States, which people were um, deducing from the polling figures, was completely unrealistic. And the pollsters are getting it really in the neck this morning for having got it wrong again. And yet, and yet, through most of the campaign this year, they have been remarkably stable in not giving Biden 
a very big lead. He has had a modest lead in the swing states, the battleground states, consistently for a very, very long time. And I think I'm right in saying, and Lewis will correct me if I'm not, is that in the national polling, he has very rarely got into double digits. So the notion that this was going to be a massive uh, Biden victory was always going to be uh, wrong. And we have to wait at the earliest until the end of this week when um, all the uh, uh, mail-in ballots, uh, mail-in uh, votes are counted by the Midwestern states. I think it's the weekend at the earliest we'll get all three of the big ones, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania in the bag. I want to talk about um, your your both of your former jobs. What would you be doing? Uh, I mentioned Christopher that you'd uh, you were at the UK ambassador to America in two thousand. You know the election was all held up over small pieces of paper hanging off of ballot papers. The hanging chads in Florida. What would um, Dame Karen Pierce, now the Britain's ambassador to the US, what would she be doing right now uh, in terms of? You know, keeping in touch with the two campaigns. Is that what she's doing? Feeding information back to London? Dominic Ra basically sat firmly on the fence this morning. What's the role of the, of the Britain's ambassador to Washington well, this, to, this morning? To add value and insight to the publicly available uh, information on what is happening in the election. I mean, every, every media organisation and its dog is reporting on this in, in very great detail. This is a moment for the ambassador through his or her... Uh, particular contacts that journalists don't necessarily have to to give insight into the situation and what, for example, actually is the real intention of the Trump campaign. Is it, as the president said himself uh, in the early hours of the morning, that uh, that it was a to, to go hard on the notion of fraud and stop the counting, um, or is it more like um, Mike Pence and his slightly calmer view of the situation. That's, I think, what Dominic Rudd would like to know. And who who's who's the best sort of sort of contact in the White House on a, on a morning like this? Who's who's the ambassador picking the phone up to? Well, you've got you've got you know three or four very close consiglieri um, who will be at the top of the campaign pyramid and who have consistently been. Um, political advisors to the president. It might. I mean, it could be Ivanka. I don't know. <laughs> it, 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 could, it could be. It could be somebody else. But she will. Let us say our ambassador. She will have identified by now the two to three most reliable people to interpret the president's uh, wishes, and you know, she will have been in touch with them if she can get hold of them. Because it's not the best of times to be ringing in as an ambassador. Uh, when uh, you have such a fraught election. I mean, my, my contact in 2000, when we had the Gore-Bush thing down in Florida, uh, was uh, Bush's advisor, who, who shot down to Florida to help the campaign, uh, a guy called Carl Rove, and he was a very accurate interpreter, of course, of what George W. intended. OK, let's sort of um, flip the, the question around the other way then, Lewis. You were in the US Embassy in London from 2016 to 2019, so the handover uh, between uh, Barack Obama and then Donald Trump. What would what's, what would be happening in the US Embassy in London uh, this morning? Well, I think a lot of people glued to their computers and televisions <laughs> trying to figure out where this is going to go. And I think the two big questions um, are, are really, when will the votes be counted and when will we know a definitive result? And what is the president's intention as far as filing legal challenges to the results. And I think that the American embassy will want to 
um, sort of put out some public diplomacy work to explain to the British public what is happening in the United States and what it means, um, which is difficult because it is very complicated. And um, I think people would have liked to have had a result last night, but clearly that is not happening. Um, but and then and then, you know, possibly if Donald Trump loses, then the American embassy shifts uh, to more of a transition mode. And uh, unlike the United Kingdom, we have uh, politically appointed ambassadors here. So um, if if Joe Biden does indeed pull this out this week, then the ambassador here will be um, think focused on um, packing up and getting ready to leave. <laughs> and the embassy will be preparing for a new ambassador and new policies and a new you know, very much of a shift in U.S. diplomacy, I think, back toward a more traditional multilateral approach. How difficult is it for you? Because uh, like you said, uh, Woody Johnson is the uh, U.S. ambassador to London, but there are lots of other people who work in the U.S. embassy who, um, uh, like you, straddle uh, different presidents. How difficult is it trying to be essentially diplomatic within the sort of normal diplomatic structures being based in London when you've got essentially a live wire in the White House? How do you cope with that? Well, it's more difficult. I mean, again, I work across five administrations and, and all, all diplomats in the U.S. system are used to transitions and, and to working from one government to another. Uh, President Trump has made that dynamic more difficult in, in the way that he has conducted um, himself as, as a president and the way he has um, conducted or not conducted diplomacy. So it's been a little bit more challenging for American diplomats. And I, I dare say, and, and this is just anecdotal, uh, but that a lot of them have their fingers crossed right now and are and I, and I think are hoping for a return to uh, more days of more traditional diplomacy and building relationships with allies as opposed to tweeting nasty <laughs> things about them in the middle of the night. And what should Boris Johnson? <laughs> what should Boris Johnson be doing about um, about all of this? Because I mean, Christopher, it's amazing. I've been speaking to you about ten minutes now, and I've yet to mention the special relationship because I know you love. Well, don't mention it because you... it it doesn't exist. <laughs> But then, but then, you know, that's the whole reason that Brits are, are supposedly obsessed with American uh, politics. I mean, it, to the extent that it ever existed, it clearly doesn't exist at the moment. Um, does that matter? And one of the things that really struck me, and we talked about this a bit overnight as well, was um, for all of the noise from Donald Trump, he's actually had very little impact on Britain, far less than, you know, in your day when uh, George Bush invited Tony Blair to, to join yeah. various yeah. wars and conflicts, which had a big impact on the UK. Actually, you know, we've, we've been, we may have been agog at what Donald Trump's been doing. He's not affected Britain in a huge way, has he? No, he hasn't. He hasn't really. And that's an important thing to, 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 uh, to bear in mind, because um, one of the reasons when I say the special relationship doesn't exist, I don't mean to say that there is a bad relationship between the UK and the US. If you draw the relationship on graph paper from, say, 1945 onwards, you'll see it's a series of ups and downs, peaks and troughs. It has always been, at the political level, quite a volatile relationship. There have been moments when the relationship has looked anything but special, and there have been other moments when it's been un extremely close, some would say unhealthily close, but that's, that's a, a matter of opinion. So uh, the notion of a special relationship is, 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 is a, I think it's a snare and a delusion for those trying to do a sober analysis of what actually binds the United Kingdom and the United States together. And the bottom line in this, the absolute foundation, is where interests converge. Where your national interests converge, those are the sinews of a close relationship. And in matters of, say, intelligence and of defense and mutual investment, 
Uh, the sinews have been very strong and very thick indeed, and maybe getting stronger and thicker with the passing of the years. But if you're talking about a special relationship, Matt, um, my definition of this, which other people may not, may, may not agree with, is your ability to affect the domestic politics of the partner country. Now, there are only two nations in the world which I think, can, by that standard, lay a claim to a special relationship with the United States. One is Israel, and the other is the Republic of Ireland. Um, and you run up against uh, the Israeli or the uh, Irish-American lobby, and by God, you'll get chewed up if you get on the wrong side of them. <laughs> Christopher Bay, thank you for that. Um, Lewis, um, was the special relationship a phrase that was used a lot when you were in the U.S. Embassy in London? Yeah, we're sort of forced to use it. It's 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 kind of <laughs> tried and true. Uh, I, I agree completely with Sir Christopher. And look, the, at at a working level, the relationship is incredibly strong and incredibly important. And the the defense and the intelligence sharing and the the, the work that we do globally around the world together um, is, is very important to, to promoting global security and prosperity. And there's a lot of attention paid on the relationship be between the two leaders, which is a little bit overblown because at the end of the day, the prime minister and the president um, can have a great relationship. But, you know, for example, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson seem to have a fairly decent relationship. But we have fundamental disagreements on some of the core ish policy issues that used to unite us and that now divide us, whether it's the Iran nuclear deal or climate change yeah, or quite. How, to, how to deal with China. So, you know, it, the, the special relationship at its, at its basis really needs to be built on shared values and shared goals. And the, the prime minister and the president can have a, a chummy relationship. But if you don't have those shared values and goals, the relationship is not that special. OK, before I let you go, I have to ask the question because that's where we started. If either of you ever served Ferrero Rocher at Ambassador's reception? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think I have. No. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know of their existence uh, when I was ambassador in Washington, but I used to get teased by Americans because there was a very similar commercial on American television for a brand of mustard called Grey Poupon. And whenever I met, I had a very good friend who was in the, in, in the White House, we used to play tennis together. And he would come up to me in, in an affected British voice and say, how's the Grey Poupon today? <laughs> and they used to drive me apeshit. I'm, I'm sure that that, well, I apologise for the language, I'm sure that that didn't get wearing at all. Uh, right, final, final thing, when I, before I let you go, one word answers if you could. Who's going to win this, Christopher? Trump. Uh, Lewis? Biden. Brilliant. I'm glad we resolved that. <laughs> <laughs> Further confirmation that everyone who split 50-50 down the middle. Really loved your speech, though. Uh, so Christopher Mayer there, uh, former uh, UK ambassador to the US from 1997 to 2003. And Lewis Lukens was the deputy chief of mission at the US embassy in London, essentially deputy ambassador and later acting US ambassador. Uh, he was based here from 2016 to 2019. Really good to speak to them uh, to get a flavour of what goes on behind the scenes. Maybe you're listening to this and thinking, I'd like a bit more of that, and who could blame you? Well, you can subscribe to the podcast right now, but also listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Coming up on the Redbox podcast, our usual bout of PMQ's Unpacked. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Shirley. Right, let's get down to the main course. Get your teeth stuck into the big political issue of the day. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley. And Patrick Maguire, of course. Patrick Maguire sitting in for Tim Shipman uh, for PMQ's Unpacked. We sort of slightly forgotten about Boris Johnson and all of this, but he's he's not had a great few days, really, is he? We were at the beginning of the week. We were we played out a whole load of off the record comments from MPs and ministers, and it was pretty grim listening for Number Ten. Yeah, and somebody ought to you know check overnight that the government hasn't secretly released the results of that leak inquiry uh, into who uh, who briefed uh, the Times and other newspapers the uh, the lockdown before it happened. Yeah, it's been it's been. You know, he's in the position this Wednesday that he swore he would never be in, i.e. pressing the nuclear button that is a second national lockdown. Uh, but looking through the the list of uh, of MPs who are going to be uh, questioning the Prime Minister, obviously we'll bring you Keir Starmer when he's up in the House of Commons. Uh, there's also the Tory MPs, Andrew Jones, Nick Fletcher, Stuart Anderson, Nazgani, Mark Pawsey, Sajid Javid, the former Home Secretary, Natalie Elphick. Are any of those likely to cause the Prime Minister trouble? Uh, Nick Fletcher and Stuart Anderson are both members of the 2019 intake. And if I, if I am not mistaken, uh, they are both... Uh, in sort of a northern red wally sort of seats, so they could have uh, a couple of sharp words with the prime minister. Okay, but we wait uh, for the signal that Keir Starmer is up in the House of Commons today. I mean, it should be in normal times. This would be quite a big week, wouldn't it? You know, you've got um, Keir Starmer still dealing with the fallout of anti-Semitism of the Labour Party. The suspension of Jeremy Corbyn uh, as a Labour MP uh, following that report from the Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, and then you, like I said, uh, you've got Boris Johnson in in. Uh, trouble with his own side over this lockdown in England. Uh, let's go to the House of Commons now. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I start with the elections in the United States? Whatever the results, will the Prime Minister join me in saying that it's not for a candidate to decide which votes do and don't count or when to stop counting? The next President must be the free and fair choice of the American people. Can I also express my revulsion at the terrorist attacks in Nice and Vienna? Um, I'm sure I speak for the whole House in saying our thoughts are with all of those affected. And, of course, Mr Speaker, can I join the congratulations uh, on your one-year anniversary? Turning now, if I may, to COVID-19. On the 21st of September, when the government's scientific advisers indicated that a circuit break 
would bring the virus back under control, the number of people that day who tragically lost their lives to COVID-19 was 11. The Prime Minister ignored that advice. On Monday, 42 days later, the number of people who tragically lost their lives to COVID-19 was 397. That's a staggering 35-fold increase. Does the Prime Minister understand the human cost of his delay in acting? Boris Johnson. Uh, well, Mr Speaker, in the answer to his uh, opening question, uh, of course, uh, we don't comment as a UK government on the democratic processes of our, of our friends and allies, and I don't think, he would, I don't think in all seriousness he would expect uh, he would expect otherwise. But, Mr Speaker, turning to the, the point about, uh, about COVID and the decision, the difficult decision that this House has to, to face tonight. I think I speak for many honourable members uh, across this House. I, say, I don't think any government would want to impose these measures lightly, or any parliament would want to impose these measures lightly on the people of this country. And it was always right, Mr Speaker, to pursue a local and a regional approach, as our scientific advisers said. And I'll tell you why, Mr Speaker, because that approach, that regional approach, actually was showing signs of working and still is showing signs of working. It did get the R down, the transmission rate down lower than it would otherwise have been, Mr Speaker, but we have to face the reality that in common with many other countries in this part of the world, we are now facing a surge in that virus which this House must now tackle with the measures we've outlined. They will expire, as honourable members know, on December the 2nd. I hope very much the members opposite will support them tonight. Uh, well, quite a lot to unpack there. Let's just pause that, uh, Patrick McGuire. First of all, let's deal with the US election. Explain to people why Boris Johnson's taking this line that Britain doesn't comment on other people's elections. Well, I, it's um, obviously he has to work with either who either man who who wins or or, or doesn't, as the case may be. And uh, it's it's not going to behove Boris Johnson to either dismiss Donald Trump or, more pertinently, uh, row in behind his old mate Donald when Joe Biden, uh, the, the, the mail-in ballots declare for Joe Biden later, especially given the sensitivities around uh, a post-Brexit trade deal. But obviously Keir Starmer um, is attacking him on that because of the perception that he's close to Trump, uh, who is perhaps the only person more unpopular among British voters at the moment than the Prime Minister, right? There, there were polling last week that said that Trump wouldn't win a single UK constituency, although uh, warning for Keir Starmer that he, his support is highest among the sort of few red wall seats that Labour uh, hold on to. So it's a, it's a tricky wicket. Yeah, the, 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 the culture war comes to the UK in that as well. On the question of the, uh, the lockdown, uh, Keir Starmer laying out lots of figures and pointing out that the death rate uh, going into this lockdown is higher than it was um, back in March. The Prime Minister, I thought it was notable, he was careful to say initially uh, that no government would want to do this and then correct himself and no parliament would want to do this. Basically, almost try to dip the hand of every to every MP in parliament in the, in this decision. Yeah, getting as much buy-in as possible. Um, also, I thought the striking thing there was his measured tone, um, which wasn't to say, as you say, there was no political opportunism in there. It was just better disguised. Usually he'd be leading with his chin if Keir Starmer was talking about documents from two months ago. He'd say, well, Captain Hindsight, rise to the rescue again. Obviously, he's now he's now Captain Hindsight or, you know, he has deferred to, you know, the Captain Hindsights of uh, his scientific advisers. So he can't do that. But as you say, he's trying to lay the groundwork so that the blame is shared equally 
among uh, among the parties in Parliament. It's interesting. Just before PMQs uh, started, the Press Association reported that Peter Bone, one of the Tory MPs, uh, unhappy about these lockdown measures, has compared the government's arguments for a new lockdown in England to Tony Blair's so-called dodgy dossier on Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. He said he decided to vote against it after a briefing for MPs by government scientists. He said it seemed to me that we were being given figures that appeared to support the government's case, but actually didn't. And we weren't having other figures which would have let us make a more balanced judgment. So just more MPs coming out to criticise the government. Let's go back to the House of Commons. This is Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I'm sure nobody wants a lockdown, but it is a question of timing. Had the decision been taken a few weeks ago to put in place a circuit break, it could have been done for two to three weeks and taken advantage of schools being closed over half term. Now the Prime Minister's proposed lockdown will be for at least four weeks. That means businesses will be closed for longer and in the critical run-up to Christmas. Does the Prime Minister understand the economic cost of his delay in acting? Mr Speaker, and it's precisely because we understand uh, the economic cost, and it's precisely because we understand the social, the psychological damage of lockdowns, that it was right, Mr Speaker, to go uh, for the local and the regional solution uh, that was supported uh, by, and indeed supported by many, uh, by many members, indeed I think by the right honourable gentleman, uh, as long as it was uh, uh, useful to him uh, for, for a while. That was, the, that was the right approach, but what I can tell him uh, Mr. Speaker, is that at the uh, expiry of this period on December the 2nd, by then, as I said in answer to my honourable friend earlier on, we will be rolling out across this country uh, new types of testing on a scale never seen before, uh, beginning uh, this week, as uh, I've said, in, in Liverpool, enabling us to detect asymptomatic te- uh, cases, Mr. Speaker, and that's crucial because 70% of the transmission is, is taking place, as the House knows, between people uh, who have no symptoms. Uh, and that will enable us to find new ways uh, on uh, at a mass scale to break the chains of transmission. I want to thank particularly the uh, Labour leadership of Liverpool for their cooperation, uh, a, a manner of cooperation that uh, I commend to the benches opposite. Yes, Tom. Uh, so Keir Starmer's argument is basically my lockdown was nicer than yours. It was only three weeks, not the four weeks that Boris Johnson's gone for. Um, uh, and but then Boris Johnson makes a point, well, I, I know about the economic cost, that's why I didn't want to do it. Two quite shrewd bits of politics there. The first was Keir Starmer leading on economic costs. Now, what does any good leader of the opposition do? They exploit the pain points for, for part, the party of government that they're opposing. What is the uh, animating concern of Tory backbenchers? It's the economy. That's how they're framing. Um, that's how they're framing their disagreement with this. Indeed, that's how much of the cabinet is framing their disagreement with this. So that's very shrewd of Keir Starmer. And also, it allows him to deflect the criticism that actually he uh, cares little for the economy and he's just you know, missed a lockdown. The second thing from Boris Johnson was very interesting. It's a tactic he's used before. It's effectively, um, it's the equivalent of Margaret Thatcher at some point in 1983 um, going up to Liverpool and uh, being pitched having a pint with Derek Hatton or, you know, going newt spotting with Ken Livingstone. It's getting uh, local government leaders, uh, especially local government leaders from the Labour Party, just as he was doing with the other parties in Parliament, casting them as the authors of this strategy as much as him. And that's the double-edged sword for mayors like Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, Joe Anderson. They've been more visible than ever before in this crisis, but the government hopes that they'll be able to devolve blame and responsibility as much as power. 
Really interesting. No, both sides have still got gloves very much on because they're, they're sort of slightly dancing around each other. Keir Starmer can't really criticise the Prime Minister for doing the thing that he asked for. Boris Johnson can't criticise Keir Starmer because he, need, he may well need his votes uh, later on in the Commons. Let's go back and hear from the Labour leader. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister's delay in acting is a huge failure of leadership and it's no good saying that there was support for the tier system. As he well knows, I looked at the evidence and made a decision three weeks ago that the right thing was for a circuit break. And I don't buy the argument, I don't think anybody does, that the facts suddenly changed this weekend. The direction of travel and the number of infections, hospital admissions and tragically deaths have been clear for weeks. But we are where we are. Millions of people across the country are really concerned about the restrictions that will come into force at midnight tonight. And I accept that we've all got a duty to pull together and try to make this lockdown work. So I just want to ask some basic and direct questions on behalf of those millions of people. First, will the lockdown end on the 2nd of December, come what may, or will it depend on the circumstances at the time? People need to know that. Well, Mr. I'm not sure we're getting very much further with Keir Starmer on this round of questioning, are we? Uh, not particularly, although, again, exit strategy, big preoccupation of... Tory MPs. That was the big ask that the Northern Research Group of Tory MPs uh, demanded of Boris Johnson in their letter to him last week um, that made a lot of waves. And also it's what Keir Starmer, um, to, uh, to a lot of raised eyebrows in Westminster, was asking for in sort of April, May, when the first lockdown was sort of still fairly novel. He was saying, what's your exit strategy? Again, he knows that's a uh, you know, a concern of business and Tory backbenchers, and um, it's quite shrewd politics. Yeah, the, the single most damaging uh, word for Boris Johnson this week was when Michael Gove was asked, could this lockdown be extended beyond December the 2nd? And he told, I think, Sophie Ridge on Sky News, yes. Yeah, exactly. And Keir Starmer knows that any answer Boris Johnson gives now is unlikely, one, to be categorical, and two, it's likely to be undermined by Michael Gove or Rishi Sunak in either direction when they're next interviewed. OK, let's see how the Boris Johnson uh, responds to that. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the, for the support that he's now uh, offering and I can uh, answer him very simply. As the House knows and as I informed him repeatedly on Monday, the, the, these measures, these autumn measures to combat the surge will expire automatically, Mr Speaker, on December the 2nd and we will then, I hope very much, uh, be able to get this country going again, to get businesses, to get shops open again in the run-up to Christmas, but that depends on us all doing our bit now to make sure that we get the R down. I've no doubt that we can uh, and, that we, and that we'll be able to go forward from December the 2nd uh, with a very, very different uh, approach, but of course it will be up to the House of Commons to decide thereafter what to do. So that's not particularly categorical. We did describe them as autumn measures, and I think probably once we're into December the 2nd, they probably do start becoming winter measures. Uh, he said they will automatically expire on the 7th of the 2nd. We will then, I hope, very much be able to get this country going again. And again, saying it's actually it's just down to Parliament. I'm merely just a, the servant of Parliament on this. And if, if Parliament, on my instruction, whipping uh, hundreds of Tory MPs, end up voting to extend it, well, that's just what Parliament's chosen to do. Yeah, or if, uh, you know... Dozens of Tory MPs rebelled and I pass it with Labour votes. I mean, he's almost in the situation that Theresa May was in on Brexit, right? 
there was a plausible majority for her deal, um, you know, at three times of asking, but it always ran through somebody else's votes. Now, if you think the internal politics of the Conservative Party are uh, rancorous and uh, un, un, uh, uneasy now, wait till December the 2nd um, when uh, Boris Johnson reluctantly and ashen face stands at the dispatch box saying, just two more weeks, guys, um, dozens of Tory MPs rebelling and they passed with Labour votes. Then, um, then you know, as much as he's saying now it's all for Parliament to decide, um, that that is a rod for his own back. Yeah, I tweeted giddily watching uh, Strictly Come Dancing while I was bombarded by messages from Tory MPs and ministers at the weekend. I think I tweeted saying that uh, a prediction Keir Starmer will be calling for talks with Boris Johnson this week. What you're saying, that sounds like that's more likely to be in the week in the run-up to uh, December the 2nd because if, if Keir Starmer starts going wobbly on lifting restrictions... Uh, and it, Boris Johnson's got a rebellion on his hands, and things could be um, this, uh, could be pretty difficult. Let's go back to Keir Starmer in the House of Commons. Mr Speaker, I accept there'll be a vote in the House. That doesn't tell us anything. That's the process. But I want to press the Prime Minister. Is he saying that if by the 2nd of, of December the R rate, the infection rate, has not come below 1, and therefore on the 2nd of, uh, of December the infection rate is still rising, still rising on the 2nd of December... Is he saying that come what may, we will come out of lockdown with infection rates going up on the 2nd of December? That doesn't seem sensible to me. Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker it's just thanks. to jump in on, on that, I'm slightly confused sometimes about Keir Starmer's strategy. A minute ago, he was complaining that it was four weeks and not three and the economic impact of that. And now he's calling for the Prime Minister to give a promise that it'll keep us in lockdown if, that's the, you know, if the infection rate is uh, rising. I know technically they are, but it is possible to think those both those things. But somebody who's only just you know passing uh, with a passing interest in this might think, does he want us in a lockdown or not? Well, you know, as leader of the opposition, he might say his is not to reason why. <laughs> you know, it's this is the this is classic Keir Starmer. It's um, you know, some people on the left of the Labour Party say it's weather vane politics. Other people say it's uh, you know, good holding the government to account whatever decision they take. Well, let's go back and see if uh, Boris Johnson feels held to account by that. Speaker, Mr Speaker, it is thanks to the efforts of the British people uh, that the R is now currently uh, only just above one as it, as it is. Uh, and uh, we are doing the right and the prudent thing at the right time uh, to get that infection rate down. And these measures, as I've said repeatedly to the House, Mr Speaker, will expire on the 2nd of December. If he's now saying he wants to expand, protract them beyond uh, the 2nd of December, then perhaps he should make his position clear. Right, Keir Starmer again. I just want some basic honesty, and this is serious. If the infection rate, if the infection rate, we've got to look the public in the eye. If the infection rate is still going up on the 2nd of December, it is madness to come out of the system back to the tiered system when we know the one thing the tiered system can't cope with is an R rate above one. That's the basic point. We can come back to it on the 2nd of December, as we always do, Mr Speaker, but that's the point I'm making. The one thing we know a circuit break or lockdown does do is to buy time. And the Prime Minister needs to use that time to fix, test and trace. And I know he'll talk about the capacity of 500,000, what's going on in Liverpool, it's world-beating, etc. But we've been going round and round in circles on this. Mr Speaker, the latest figures show that 113,000 contacts were not even reached, and that's just in one week. Only 20% of those who should be isolating are doing so. And the majority of people still don't get results in 24 hours. So can the Prime Minister give a straight answer? What's he going to do in the next four weeks to fix this? Because if he doesn't, we'll be back here again. I suspect we're going to hear just Boris Johnson's greatest hits on coronavirus. That wasn't the most taxing of questions, I suspect. Let's see what the Prime Minister has to say. 
Mr. Speaker, I'm, I'm with greatest respect to the right honourable gentleman uh, who has uh, stood up uh, and said uh, that I will brag uh, about NHS test and trace and their achievement of 500,000, uh, a target of capacity of 500,000. You know, I think uh, uh, I, I'm perfectly willing to accept the failings of NHS test and trace, Mr. Speaker. Of course I am. Uh, and, and of course I take full responsibility for the frustrations people have experienced with that system. But to go from 3,000 tests a day, 2,000 tests a day, to 500,000 is a quite remarkable feat. It's the biggest diagnostics exercise this country has ever carried out. And, Mr Speaker, they are, they are helping to drive down the R. Uh, and it, and it is, they are doing, in my view, an absolutely invaluable job, whatever the difficulties they face. What we now need to do is to come together as a nation, briefly if we can, to put aside party political wrangling and point scoring and work together, as I think he will tonight, work together to support this package to get the R down and allow us to go forward in a different way with the mass testing that I've outlined from December the 2nd. Boris Johnson holding out a bit of an olive branch. Now, let's all work together. Put aside our party political point scoring, uh, which I may have done against you in the past. Um, really interesting, Chris has just uh, got in touch and said, I don't understand Keir Starmer's line here. Mark Drakeford, who's the First Minister in Wales, has st said that Wales comes out of its lockdown uh, next week no matter what. And obviously, you know, Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer what he was saying, is also sort of, you know, at times at odds with uh, Labour mayors in various parts of northern England as well. Yeah, he is, and that and that that is the that is the tricky thing. That's the sort of double-edged sword of devolution for, for the Labour Party, particularly the Labour Party at Westminster, right? It's the new Welsh NHS, um, which was always Theresa May's favourite riposte to Jeremy Corbyn when he went on <laughs> one of his um, one of his one of his monologues about the uh, the state of the health service. You could very easily say, well, hang on, you run the NHS in Wales, and uh, you're doing uh, you know an even worse job than uh, NHS England. So it's it's the politics of this are going to be very tricky for Keir Starmer, especially because, given the um, the amount of publicity that circuit breaking in Wales has had, and also then what if uh, what if infections going up in Wales in two weeks' time? It's 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 really tricky. Okay, let's go back to the last exchanges then, Keir Starmer. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister must see that if four out of ten of those that should be contacted are not being contacted, we've got a problem in the system that needs to be fixed in the next four weeks. Finally, I want to ask about care homes, which of course were hit so badly in the first wave of this pandemic. And can I pay tribute, Mr. Speaker, to all those working in care homes who've given such dedication and commitment in the toughest of circumstances, and we owe it to them not to repeat the mistakes of the first wave. But, Prime Minister, as we face the second wave, there's an increasing concern about the emotional well-being of those in care homes and their families if all visits uh, are stopped. It must be possible to find a way, perhaps a dedicated family member scheme of some sort, to allow some safe visits to alleviate the huge fears of isolation and despair across the coming months. Will the Prime Minister work cross-party to find a scheme that will work for those in care and their families? Mr Speaker, the new, new guidance on care homes and visiting uh, relatives safely, because the, the point he makes is incredibly important, uh, is going to be uh, announced today to try to strike the right balance between people's uh, real, real need to uh, see their loved ones and obviously the risk of spreading the disease in care homes. We're going to be publishing uh, some guidance about how that can be done today. Uh, and I, I'm, you know, I'm grateful to, to his offer to work uh, collaboratively, but I have to say, Mr Speaker, that the House will generally have noted that he has used this crisis uh, as an opportunity to make uh, political 
political capital. To have, to have what I think a shadow, a shadow, a shadow spokesman called a good crisis. A good crisis, Mr. Deacon. Well, can I commend a different approach? Because he's attacked the government's uh, strategy. Uh, can I commend a different approach? Because the former uh, Labour leader, the right honourable former member for, for Sedgefield, uh, who is not as fashionable in, in, on those benches as he once Tony uh, was or, sh or, or should be, has written a good, or, not, 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 not with all of them, Mr. Speaker, perhaps on the front page, but not with all of them. He's written a good piece in today's Daily Mail, uh, Mr. Speaker, in which he supports, broadly supports this government's strategy, praising UK drugs companies for what they're, they're doing, supporting our search for a vaccine, and supporting mass testing in Liverpool, uh, which uh, he deprecates, Mr. Speaker. And uh, I think he, uh, he, what he should do is actually take a leaf out of uh, the Blair book. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, and by the way, and by the way, I can tell him uh, that Tony Blair would not have spent four years in the same shadow cabinet as Jeremy Corbyn, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with him. Well, there we are. The, literally, in the last breath, Boris Johnson managed to raise Jeremy Corbyn, being a bit naughty. Actually, he's not. He should refer to him as the um, uh, uh, member from the Islington, right honourable member for Islington North. Islington yeah. North, and not referring to him as Jeremy Corbyn. It makes a better social media clip, I suppose, if you name him like that. Um, uh, knowing that uh, Keir Starmer doesn't have a comeback, he, that's when he takes the gloves off. Says, uh, you know, does the whole, you know, party political uh, point scoring, you know, referring again, Kate Green is the shadow um, shadow education shadow secretary. Education yeah. secretary. He was caught saying that the Labour shouldn't give up a, a, a good crisis. Um, raising Tony Blair and saying that Keir Starmer should be more like Tony Blair, which would probably upset those who are already upset that, that um, Jeremy Corbyn's been given the um, being suspended. What do you make of all of that? I mean, I suppose in the end it's going to be overshadowed by what's coming out of America and the actual act later on of voting to go into lockdown. Well, I'm not convinced of the, uh, of, the of a strategy that encourages Keir Starmer or you know that uh, suggests that Keir Starmer, uh, you know, that would be a really uncomfortable. Uh, line for for Jeremy Corbyn for instance right why don't you do what Tony Blair does because Jeremy Corbyn uh, is often looks physically uncomfortable when he you know talks or talks about Tony Blair um Keir Starmer uh not from the same wing of the Labour Party as Tony Blair but he's very much closer to Tony Blair than he is Jeremy Corbyn so I'm not really convinced that that's the that's the you know the slam dunk uh attack on uh, Keir Starmer that Boris Johnson thinks it is to be honest uh, well, you're listening to PMQ's Unpacked uh, with me, Matt Chorley. I'm joined in the studio by Patrick Maguire. Let's take a listen to the uh, front bench exchange between Ian Blackford, the SNP Westminster leader, and Boris Johnson. Up in Scotland with Ian Blackford. Ian Blackford. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. And I'd like to take the opportunity to send my best wishes to our friends in the US during this anxious time. Donald Trump claimed an unsupported victory and major fraud with millions of legitimate ballots left to count. And I hope the Prime Minister will join me in condemning his actions this morning. Mr Speaker, on Monday, the Prime Minister agreed access to the furlough scheme at 80% for Scotland if lockdown restrictions require it. Subsequently, a number of his ministers have rolled back on that promise and the Scottish Government have not received any detail on what the commitment means in practice. Today is the Prime Minister's opportunity to clear up this mess of his own government's making. Will Scotland receive full 80% furlough and self-employed payments on current eligibility whenever it is requested by the Scottish Government in the months ahead? Mr. 
Well, I'm, Mr. Speaker, I uh, hesitate to accuse the right honourable gentleman of failing to listen to what I said on, on Monday, but I think he heard exactly uh, what I said. I gave a commitment. Then I in no way budge uh, from that uh, commitment. Furlough is a UK-wide scheme. Uh, it's helped save, I think, about 10 million jobs uh, in this country, including about a million in Scotland, Mr. Speaker. Uh, well, there we are. So the, the SNP has really been trying to keep this row going, haven't they, about the 80% furlough, even though the government has moved on it? Yeah, it's interesting. In that question, you see the two prongs of the SNP, uh, the SNP campaign for independence, one of which is stronger than the other. The first is the, the cultural issue, the cultural contrast with, uh, with, with liberal Nicola Sturgeon and populist Boris Johnson, as seen with the invitation for Boris Johnson to support Donald Trump, which he predictably rejected. The second, which Scottish Tories, as pessimistic as they are at the moment, still feel a little bit of optimism on, feel the SNP haven't proven their case, is this idea that only the United Kingdom can give Scots the economic uh, protection, the economic strength uh, in the global economy that they need. Um, now, this 80% furlough row, uh, even though it's sort of been resolved, as you say, is a matter from heaven for the SNP because it allows them to say, look, all this nonsense that um, the, the uh, uh, Scotland and the United Kingdom can um, maintain its economic clout is rubbish because they won't even extend at a time of acute crisis um, the, the the treatment they're giving to people in England. Um, and whether but whether that will wash, given that you know furlough has kept jobs afloat in Scotland and now it's being extended is another question. Uh, yeah, and but you know, like you said, the SNP's ability to turn almost anything to their advantage is, is always impressive and remarkable. Their, their, their political um, nous is, is to be applauded, whatever you think of, uh, of uh, their aims. Uh, Patrick McGuire, thank you so much for joining us for PMQ's Unpacked this week. It's how we do PMQ's on Times Radio, pausing the action to explain what is going on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. And then uh, uh, the SNP's Ian Blackford there. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.